the very first church was devoted to fellowship. We've been studying the devotion of the first church, and in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says the first church, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. The first church was devoted, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Last week, we started talking about the apostles' teaching and how it was all centered on Jesus. This week, we're going to talk about fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship is doing life together, carrying out the will of God. And I have to ask, how in the world did that first church do that? How in the world were they concerned about and, and concerned and keep the relationship with each other and do the will of God without killing each other? Has anybody ever lived in a family before? Isn't family hard? Relationship and responsibility-wise, family can be difficult. I was meeting with our prayer group today, and the conversation went something like this. I love him, and I love his family. I just don't want him to be part of my family. Isn't that kind of how family works? Family, sometimes the relationships are strained. In the first church, it seemed to work really well. Let me, let me just show you how awesome the first church did it. And they were like, oh man, if we could only be like that first church. Here's the first church, Acts chapter 2. They were devoted to fellowship. And then Luke explains what that looked like. He says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Here's what that looked like. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They couldn't wait to hear more from the apostles. Their miracles were happening all over the place. And then they were devoted to fellowship. Here's what it looked like. All the believers were together, life together, relationship, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, fulfilling the responsibility, the, uh, the responsibility that God gave them. Everything's beautiful and perfect in this first church. If only we could be like the first church. Well, you know, when you put 3,000 people together all at once, it's a recipe for disaster. We read about these first churches. In Acts chapter 3, you just turn the page a little bit, you start feeling the persecution from the religious right and the Roman government. No longer would they be able to just go about and talk freely about Jesus Christ. They were told, do not preach anymore in this name. And you know when pressure comes on a family, sometimes the relationship starts showing signs of cracking. Then you turn over one page and you see the relationship has started to crack. In the very first church, there was starting to be lies and deceit in the relationship. And then we turn it over another page. And in this first church, um, the widows who spoke Greek were not being taken care of the same as the widows who spoke Hebrew. There was racial tension in the first church. Then there's even more persecution where people are dragged from their homes and thrown into prison because they love Jesus. And the church scatters and there's cracks in the relationship all over. See, the very first church looked great on paper and started off strong in relationship and responsibility. And then when the pressure came, there were problems. I wonder how the first church did it. When Paul writes to the church at, Cor at Corinth, here are some of the problems that church had. If you want to talk about the first church having problems, Corinth had problems. 
uh, Paul begins his letter and says, some of you have divided into your Sunday school classes and you're starting to worship the leaders who taught you. Some of you say you follow Peter. Some of you say you follow Apollos. Some of you say you follow Paul. Some of you say you follow Jesus. He said, we're only around Jesus. Anybody ever follow a celebrity preacher and you wish your preacher was like that preacher? There's a lot of good preaching out there. Paul says, no, no, we have to make sure we're focused on Jesus. That first church had problems. And then you turn the page in that letter, and uh, they start having <laughs> all sorts of problems. Um, they were having uh, conflict because of sexual immorality. In fact, it got so bad that Paul said, you not only are allowing it to happen, but you're kind of approving it this incest that's happening in your church. And then he said there's sex with prostitutes. You, don't you know your body is the temple of God? You're supposed to keep it pure. This first church had problems. Lawsuits among believers. Debates that probably turned into arguments about marriage and divorce. There's problems in the first church. How did they keep doing devotion to fellowship with the problems they were beginning to encounter in their family, in their relationships? And Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and there was disagreement about what made a person holy. It was whether they wear a mask or not. Oh, no. Sorry. I misread that. It was whether they ate meat or not. I misread meat there. <laughs> there was disagreement about how far they should trust and resist the government when the government put rules on them. The first church struggling with this. How did they stay devoted to fellowship? Fellowship is relationship, living together, doing life together, carrying out the will of God. But when pressure comes and cracks develop in those relationships, we don't end up doing the responsibility we have to God well because our relationships are breaking down. How did the first church do it? And how does God call us to continue to be devoted to fellowship? Today, we want to look at how we can be devoted as a church to fellowship, and we're going to start adding um, some definitions to this fellowship word. The Greek word is koinonia, and you, you understand a uh, definition of, of words used in the Bible. You look at what the word means, like you go to the Bible dictionary, koinonia means partnership, staying together, sharing, but then you also have to look at it in context. So in the Acts chapter 2, the context of fellowship was they looked around, they saw a need, and they, and they met that need. But then we read in Peter, when, when he writes a letter, his, his word for fellowship is more like a business partnership. So you have to read it in context. And so we're going to add to our definition of fellowship and how we're supposed to do life together, life together, fulfilling the responsibility of God. We're going to talk about relationships and responsibility. Relationship and responsibility. That's what we're going to do for the word fellowship. And it's not just doing life together. It's not like a social club. So we can gather together and be together and do life together around all sorts of things. But it only counts as fellowship in the scripture and according to God when we're doing God's work, when we're doing his will, when we're carrying out the will of God together. That is the only thing that counts as fellowship. So if you're just meeting together to do social stuff together, that is fun and that is good and those are healthy things. Do that. But it's not necessarily biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship is relationship carrying out the will of God. We follow along? 
This is how we're going to do life together. And it begins in relationship. Begins in relationship. Uh, this, is, this is so cool. Jesus Christ gives us fellowship with the Father because he has fellowship with the Father. Jesus has this relationship with God the Father. Jesus' son has this relationship with God the Father that is built on trust and love and grace and obedience. And because Jesus has this beautiful relationship with God the Father, he can give us holiness. He gives us grace. He gives us love. He, gives, he makes us holy. Our relationship with each other where we can do life together is based on our ability to do life together with Jesus and our relationship with him. If you're struggling when a disagreement or an argument, if you're struggling with a family member in your own immediate family or in the family of God, I would check your relationship with God. Most of our struggles that go on inside our family or inside our bigger church family have to do with either one or both parties are not pursuing a connection and a close relationship with God. Jesus allows us to do that. Jesus came and he only did what God told him to do. He only fulfilled God's plan. He even only spoke the words God told him to say because he had this beautiful relationship. And he gives us that ability to have that relationship. Jesus Christ loves us, and he wants us to be connected to him. And so he is willing to die on the cross to have our sins forgiven, our debt paid, our sin sickness healed, so that we can be in a relationship with him. And because of that grace and because of that love, it overflows into grace and love for church members. This is how we continue to do relationship, even though relationships are hard. We overflow with the grace that we've received from Christ. Fellowship is about relationship and responsibility, beginning with a relationship with Jesus. If you're going to write that down, write that down. Fellowship is about relationship and responsibility, beginning with a relationship with Jesus. And it's Jesus who makes us holy. In the Old Testament, I, I love this story. I just picked this up last week. I can't stop thinking about it. Um, God in the Old Testament, he begins teaching his people that he is holy and that to come into his presence, we have to be clean and holy as well. And so in the Old Testament, he gave them these uh, ritual cleansings that they had to undergo so that they could get rid of their uncleanliness and be clean to go into his presence. And he started describing what this kind of relationship was going to look like. And, and, and he would say stuff like, well, if you touch a dead animal, you're going to be unclean. Well, touching a dead animal didn't make them a sinner, and it wasn't illegal to touch an un, uh, un, a dead animal. It just made them unclean. What made it bad was to think that you could be unclean and you just stroll into God's presence because he is holy and pure and righteous and good. And if you think that you can just stroll in there without going through the process to be made clean, you'd be destroyed, not because God was bad or evil, but because he was so good. The teacher I heard this from, he said, it's kind of like a metaphor with the sun, the sun gives our planet life and energy and sustains life through heat, and it is powerful. But if you get too close to the sun, it's not that the sun is bad, but it will burn you up. Even being outside in the sun, I know we don't have that many days in Ohio that do it, but even being outside in the sun will, can burn our skin if we don't take precautions, right? Because the sun is powerful. God is holy like that. And so he gave the people these... these uh, ritual cleansings to make themselves right to be able to go into his presence. 
gave them this covenant, this Moses covenant. And he said, you know what, if you would just, if, if, he does say if, if you follow the laws I give you, and you follow all these rituals, if you do all these things, then you will be my people, I will be your God, we will be in a relationship together. Anybody know what happened to the people who tried to follow all the laws of God? Were they successful or did they fail? They failed. It's an easy answer. Anybody in here ever tried to follow all the rules and all the laws? Is anybody in here perfect at doing that? Nobody? No, we're not. So God does this new covenant. I, 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 love, I love this. This is all about how Jesus makes us holy and builds this relationship with us. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has this vision. He goes into the throne room of God. And he sees the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the whole temple. This is a beautiful vision. There were, there were seraphim, kind of angels, flying around God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Talking about how holy he is, how powerful he is, how strong he is, how beautiful he is, how good he is, how righteous he is. Well, can we go into that presence? Well, Isaiah recognized he couldn't. He says, woe to me, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then, this, this is new, this is new. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar near God's throne. And when, he, when it touched my mouth, he said, this is touch your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. There was something that came from God that made Isaiah clean. He was no longer unclean or unworthy to go in the presence of the Lord. Now, this is different. This is different because before it was, you had to go through ritual cleansings to be able to come into the throne room of God. Now it's something coming from the throne room of God. We flip over in Ezekiel, this prophet. Hang with me. There's a point to what I'm going at here. Hang with me. Ezekiel, the prophet, he has this vision. He's at the temple. And he sees water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was coming down from under the temple. And then he brought me out through the north gate and led me around to the outside gate. And the water was trickling. This water coming from the temple. As they went, he led me through the water and it became ankle deep. This is Ezekiel 47. They went a little further and the water was knee deep. They went a little further, and now the water was up to his waist. He went a little further, and it became a river he couldn't cross. Listen to this. He said, son of man, do you see this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down where it enters the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the water flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So the river flows, every, wherever the river flows, everything will live. There is something coming from God, these two prophets see, that gives life and holiness and beauty, which is opposite of what it was before. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus goes among the unclean people and he touches them. The people who cannot be touched. There's this great story where the leper is walking through and he has to yell out, unclean, unclean, because 
He's not allowed to be around anybody. He has to let people know he's unclean. And if you touch the leper, you become unclean. You can't go into God's presence. And Jesus goes and he touches that leper. And the uncleanliness doesn't come off of the leper and transfer to Jesus. What happens is Jesus' life and holiness transforms the leper and gives him healing and life. This is what Jesus does for us. He comes and he gives us life. His sacrifice on the cross makes us holy. His bloodshed cleanses us so that we can go into the presence of God. And it is this grace and this love and this relationship that we can now have that overflows in the relationship with each other. It's because of the relationship we have with God that we can now have a relationship with each other and do fellowship. Life together, doing the will of God. Relationship and responsibility. They go hand to hand in fellowship. And the first church was devoted. And our church should be devoted to this same type of relationship and responsibility. Are we tracking? By the way, just as a side note, we love the sound of babies in our church. Isn't it good? Isn't it good when you hear a baby? We love babies. We love babies coming here because we get to help train them up in the way they should go, and we get to help give parents the tools they need to train them up in the way they should go. We love when babies interrupt the sermon. A lot of times, they're cuter than the preacher anyway. (laughs) Or all the time. I heard that. (laughs) Where were we? Responsibility, responsibility. So we have this relationship, and it's built on the relationship we have with Jesus, who gives us grace and love. He's the one that changes us, transforms us. Now, we get to go have that same transforming relationship with other people by being an ambassador for Jesus. So he says, since I made peace with God for you, you go help people get peace with God. We do this by being a witness for Jesus. We bear witness, like in a courtroom. We go and we say, hey, look at what Jesus has done for me, and we just have conversations about God, and we build these relationships because of the relationship we have with God. But we have this responsibility to do it together as a church family carrying out the will of God. It's really hard sometimes. But if we can keep going back to that grace and love that we get from Jesus, we can do it with each other too. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, this is start, this is, now we're starting to see how the first church was able to overcome their differences and their fighting and their problems and the tension of being a family and being around each other because it's the grace and love that Jesus gives. And then as we overflow with that same grace and love, we're able to start doing the will of God together. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, he said, man, I I can't wait to come and see you so I can give you a spiritual gift so that I can encourage you. And then as I see you working out the will of God together as a church, you're going to encourage me. That responsibility of encouraging each other is part of the fellowship. Later, Paul writes, he said, where does my joy come from? It comes from when I see people saved in the Lord and then carrying out the work of the Lord. We have this responsibility to share joy with each other. When I meet with our prayer groups 
We have, I have a, a, a prayer group I'm involved with on Sunday morning. That time together encourages me and gives me joy. I'm feeding off of the relationship as we carry out the work of the church. When I meet on Wednesday night with our Zoom Bible study, I am blown away time and time again at the depth of the relationships that can be developed over Zoom. I never thought that was possible. And yet we laugh together, we pray together, we love the Lord together, and we're learning the apostles' teaching together. And we're motivated to go do life together, carrying out the will of God. I'm encouraged and strengthened and motivated by that time together. When I meet with, you know, the first churches, they shared preachers and they shared missionaries and they wrote letters of, of introduction for each other and they, they even collected for each other. When I meet with the other pastors in town and we pray together, it encourages me, but then it also ends up being good for our church. Pastor Rich over at um, Church of God off Nelson, he gets these food trucks in. And he calls me every once in a while and he said, hey, Dale, I've got uh, 20 extra boxes of food. Anybody in your church need food? And we always have 10 to 20 people that need a pick-me-up with food. And so now we have this fellowship that's happening even between other churches where we are doing life together, relationship, doing the will of God together, helping, serving, meeting each other's needs. Do you know we can even share faith like it's one thing to like feed off each other's joy but do you know that we can even encourage each other with our faith and share faith dr peterson dwight peterson was his name when he was 18 years old he became a paraplegic and he went on to get multiple degrees in theology and was a believer and he loved the story out of mark chapter 2 Mark chapter 2 tells a story where Jesus is teaching in a house and there have been so many people that packed in there that there is no room for any more visitors. And Dr. Peterson loves the story. He said, there was a paraplegic. His, their, the paraplegic's friends put him on a mat. They picked up the mat and they carried him to go meet Jesus because they knew Jesus could give him healing. And when they got to the house, it was so packed they couldn't get in to see Jesus. So they climbed up on the roof they dug through the roof and they lowered their friend down to see Jesus so he could get healing. And Dr. Peterson said he loved that, that story because the man got healed. And he said, I'm a crippled. That man was a crippled. I just know someday I'm going to meet Jesus and I'm going to be healed. He can even heal me now. He hasn't yet, but he could. But he knows one day I'm going to. And then in 2012, Dr. Peterson was diagnosed with an inoperable, uncurable problem with his hips and legs. And he developed an infection so bad that the doctors said, this is going to kill you. We cannot cure it. And they called in hospice. And he said, I lost my faith. He said, I couldn't believe it. And he went back to that chapter 2 story in Mark about the friends carrying their friend in to see Jesus. 
And he said there was always something about that story that bothered him because he grew up in an evangelical church and faith was always so personal between him and God. And as he's reading this story about the paralyzed man coming to Jesus, verse 4, chapter 2, since they could not get to him, him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And Dr. Peterson couldn't shake the thought that the faith of the friends is what Jesus used to heal the paralyzed man. And he had a friend visit. He's in hospice care, he's preparing for his death, and he says to his friend, I've lost my faith. And his friend said, don't worry, Dr. Peterson, we've got enough faith for you. We'll take care of you. And then it hit him, this is how fellowship works. When the body of Christ comes together and does relationship, and they carry out the work of God, they even can share their faith enough to bring about healing, and his faith was restored because of his relationship with the church and them coming to help him. Isn't this responsibility that we have to carry out the will of God powerful? The first church was devoted to the fellowship. Relationship, responsibility. We've got a similar responsibility. We have a responsibility to each other, to continue to equip each other toward maturity, to continue to teach each other the apostles' teaching, to continue on until we reach full maturity in Jesus. So however long that takes, that's how long we have a responsibility to carry out God's will, to encourage and strengthen and teach and share joy and even exchange faith. Last week, during this hour, I set aside time to pray for one another. And it went like this. I said, um, you know, we need to do this prayer and fellowship apostle teaching. And it was totally inaudible, was unprepared for. I, I didn't plan it out. I just thought, man, this would be really good if we just prayed for each other. Because we're the church. We're supposed to strengthen, encourage, and hold each other accountable. And we need to pray for each other. And, and so I did this this. Uh, harebrained idea that we could pray for each other. Then I said something like this. I said, if you need prayer, you raise your hand, and then somebody in this church will see your hand raised, and they'll come over and pray with you. And, and in my head, this was, this was going to be awesome. There were going to be hands flying up all over the place, and, and people were going to jump out of their seat and run over and pray. And in my mind, that's how it was going to work. And I said, okay, because this is a responsibility, you know, relationship, responsibility, doing life together, the will of God, praying for each other is part of that strengthening, encouraging, equipping. And so I said, this happened last week. I said, raise your hand if you need prayer. And nobody raised their hand. (laughs) And all I could think about was, you bunch of liars. (laughs) I I had a friend, I had a friend that said, "A a lot more grace. So this person must be closer to Jesus than I am. Because my friend said, well, Dale, I needed prayer, and I needed somebody to pray for me, but I wanted to go pray for somebody else and share that love and grace that I've been given. And he said, probably what happened is everybody in the room felt like they needed to go, wait and go pray for somebody else instead of asking for prayer for themselves. 
right. (laughs) I would go with that except some of the people in this room, like, they went like this. They, like, looked straight ahead. They said, man, if I don't see anybody raise their hand, I don't got to go pray for anybody. (laughs) It is hard. It's hard to do relationship because it kind of makes you vulnerable. For you to raise your hand, it means you are admitting you need somebody to pray for you. And for you to get out of your seat and go pray, it means you're going to have to put yourself in that uncomfortable position where you think, man, I don't even know if I know the right thing to say. So it's easy. You say, how can I pray for you? And that person says, well, you know, I'm struggling with this. And then you say, God, help them with this. Amen. That's kind of how simple it is. We're going to try it here and get in a minute. But I want to encourage you with this story. We did have two people raise their hand for prayer. I only saw one of them. Uh, Carrie Barker raised his hand for prayer. Carrie is a big giant of a man. He's a strong dude. And um, one of our church members went over and prayed with him. It happened right back over here. And I texted Carrie after church. I said, Carrie, I'm, I'm so thankful that you raised your hand for prayer today. I, I, I said in, in the text, I said, you know, I think the more often we do it and we break the ice and we realize that it's not going to hurt each other and the, the more we pray for each other, I think the healthier our church will be. I think that's kind of what we're supposed to be doing anyway. And, and here's what he texted me back. And this uh, kind of uh, makes me a little emotional. My wife calls me crybaby. She's so encouraging. I said, Carrie, thank you for raising your hand for prayer. Carrie texted me back. He said, my son Colin was at the table with me. And he said, Colin needs to see his big, strong dad needs prayer too. I said, Carrie, I never thought about that. He goes, I didn't either. But later, as I was thinking about it, I'm so glad that I asked for prayer so that he could see I needed help. Because life is hard. That's where the relationship of the church is supposed to come in. So in a second, I'm going to ask, who needs prayer? And our job is to raise our hand if we need somebody to pray for us today. Make ourselves vulnerable. It's a hard step to take, but once you take that step, it gets easier and easier to do the responsibility of fellowship. And then as a church, it doesn't have to be a minister or a paid staff or an elder to go pray because that's the responsibility of the church. And so if you see somebody's hand raised, you go over and pray with them. That's the responsibility. And if we can practice, this is a semi-safe place. If we can practice in a safe area, we can do it outside of this room where it gets dangerous. Where life really starts happening. Where persecution from the government and from the religious whoever and from problems just like the church, first church had. We got to practice where it's safe, but it is doing fellowship. All right, so here we go. The goal is to get more than two, because that's what we had last week. If you need prayer today, 
would you raise your hand? And if you see somebody with their hand raised, would you go sit beside them and pray? In the first hour, we did this. Somebody in the back, we had about six or seven people raise their hand. And we had this one guy, he was a preacher visiting from out of town. <laughs> and the, there was a couple in the back that said, preacher, I know you can pray. And he got up and he went and prayed with him. Don't make me call you out. If you need hand, a prayer today, will you raise your hand? We have some people around. If you see somebody with their hand up, would you go pray with them? We're just going to take a couple minutes and do that. And if you're online at home and you're watching and you're following the live stream, if you need prayer, if you'll write that in the comment section or if you'll send us a note, we'll pray for you right now and we'll follow up and pray with you later as well. We do a Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. prayer time on Facebook, right before you go to work, right before you go to school, where we just pray for each other. You can send in your comments and your prayer requests. And then we keep praying for you all day and we get those notifications all week and we just keep praying. This is the beginning of how we're fulfilling the responsibility of fellowship. 